Philippians chapter number 2, if you would take your Bible and turn over there. And uh, we're going to get into the message here in a few moments, but I wanted to take a, the opportunity right now to uh, read this passage of Scripture that we're going to be uh, discussing in our message this morning. And uh, once you find that, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, Philippians chapter number 2, verses 8 through verse 11. <clears throat> We're going through our series, Rejoice in the Lord, uh, verse-by-verse series through the book of Philippians, and uh, we're in chapter 2 and verse number 8, where the Bible says this, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above Every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what I'd like to encourage us all to do, instead of me having prayer at the end of the scripture reading, I want to encourage all of you, and myself included, to have prayer and uh, to go ahead, if you're able, to bow the knee this morning uh, and, uh, in, and, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and, and to worship Him for who He is. And so at this time, uh, right where you are, if you want to have a seat or if you want to kneel right where you are or come to the front, I would encourage you to do one of those three and, and have some special time of prayer, just you and the Lord, worshiping Him for who He is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are right to be bowing before you. Lord, there's a lot of people on this planet who have wanted others to bow to them. But Lord, you're the one that deserves all of us to bow before you. And Lord, I pray that that would not just take place in a moment like we just had, but Lord, throughout our lives, may our lives be constantly bowed before you constantly allowing you to be the king of our lives, the king of who we are. Lord, I, I pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds this morning as we look at this very special and precious passage of Scripture. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for that, and we're going to go ahead and get into the message this morning. I'd like to ask, start by asking this question. How many of you are roller coaster junkies? Would you raise your hand? All right, there's several. How many of you are the opposite of a roller coaster junkie and uh, stay very far away from them if you can? All right, there's some other hands there. Um, I'm definitely not Mr. Roller Coaster. Um, the reason for it, maybe is because uh, you've heard the expression, I'm sure, what goes up must come down. 
And, uh, you know, I don't really mind the going up part. That's not really my, my, my issue. It's the, uh, it's the going down part is, is the problem. Um, I wanted to show you a picture of a roller coaster. It's uh, called King Daka, and it's in New Jersey. And it is the uh, world's fastest roller coaster, at least according uh, as of 2005 when it opened. I, I think it still holds the record for the world's fastest roller coaster and tallest roller coaster with a drop of, get this, 418 feet. So basically what you see in that picture there is the beginning of the ride. And what it does is it launches you up that tall rocket-looking thing. And then you go down it super fast, and then you go back over the, the, the hump there, and you're done with the ride. So the whole ride is just going up and down. Um, and uh, that doesn't really look all that appealing to me. Uh, do not sign me up for that one, please. So what goes up must come down. But as I thought about that, I thought when it came to Jesus Christ, the saying is actually reversed, isn't it? What goes down must come up. You know, there's a biblical principle that exaltation, exaltation always follows willful humility. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So first comes humility, then comes God exalting us. James 4.10 says something similar. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So go down and then what goes down must come up. Matthew 23 verse 12 says, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Well, there's no greater illustration of this truth than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no one experienced the level of humiliation like he faced. The fact that Jesus was willing to be born as a little baby in Bethlehem's manger, for him to give up the glories of heaven and come to live on this earth, none of us will be able to completely understand the level of humiliation that he went through. But also... No one was exalted quite like Jesus was and is as well. So he experienced a humiliation that no one else has ever or ever will experience. And, and he also experienced a, an exaltation that no one else will ever experience. And this morning from this passage, we're going to look at four truths about Christ's exaltation. The fact that, yes, he was humbled, but then he was exalted. First of all, I want us to look at, number one this morning, the reasons for Christ's exaltation. Why was Christ exalted? Well, look in verse number nine. The Bible says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Wherefore. That's a, that's a transitional word. That's a, basically a connecting word from what just happened and what was just mentioned to what is being now mentioned. So really for us to understand Christ's exaltation, we need to look at why he was exalted. And the reason he was exalted is, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, is he experienced a humiliation like no one else has ever experienced. 
In verse number 8, we see the reasons why Christ was exalted. In verse number 8, it says, In being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and then he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We kind of break this up into uh, three areas here. First of all, we see his selflessness. His selflessness. Jesus, who was used to being worshipped by the angels in heaven for eternity past, now is being willing to be found in fashion as a man and to put himself in a human body and to uh, put himself into times of temptation and and to confront sin and and, uh, as Paul said to the Corinthians, become sin for us. Amazing that he would be willing to lay it all out there. He could have come and again said, I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Everyone bow down and worship me. That is not at all how he came. As I mentioned last week, if you were here, if you remember that, he came with, uh, he, he made himself of no reputation. In fact, when, and we mentioned this last week, when Judas came to plant that kiss of betrayal on the cheek of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason he did that is because the guards didn't know who Jesus was. There was nothing about him. He he didn't walk around, you know, glowing. He could have. He didn't come around walking with this halo around his head, although he could have. He could have come and, and uh, looked the part of the king, but instead he looked the part of just an average, ordinary man. He was selfless. He, he humbled himself and he became flesh and dwelt among us and walked upon the streets of dust when he was used to walking on the streets of gold. God became man and dwelt among us. The Bible also says that he came to minister and to serve, and we mentioned that last Sunday as well. He could have come to be served, but instead, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. So he wasn't thinking about himself. He was completely selfless. But not only was he selfless, he also had, uh, notice his submission there in verse number eight as well, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And then here's his submission here again, and became obedient unto death. He was willing to obey the will of his Father. He was willing to become submissive to God the authority. So he is going lower and lower in his humiliation. But then it ends with verse number 8. It goes on to say, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's where we see his sacrifice. The crucifixion was the lowest point of his humiliation. For God, remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the, what's the next one? The life. He is the life, but yet, the one who is the life tasted death for you and for me. I could try to explain some of the humiliation that Jesus went through on the cross, but, but Isaiah said it really good, and I'd like to invite you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to look at this passage. This shows us the humility that Jesus went through 
on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah said, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. As I mentioned, he didn't have this, wow, that must be the Son of God appearance. He had no form nor comeliness. Isaiah goes on, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Can can you imagine the creation rejecting the creator in the moment that he became the creation, in the moment that he came and died for the creation? The Bible says we he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And that's the humiliation. But notice here in verse 12, we see the exaltation of Christ as well. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see that in verse number 12? He was numbered with the transgressors. This is the holy God, the creator, who is, be, who is willing to be numbered with the transgressors. Unbelievable sacrifice. Unbelievable willingness to be selfless and to submit and to sacrifice. A.W. Tozer said this, In every Christian's heart... There is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding in worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, 
but insists that Christ do all of the dying and all of the sacrifice. Wow. Humility results in a life of dying to self, which produces radical obedience and great abandon. So we see here the reasons for Christ's exaltation. The fact that he was humbled so low. That wasn't the end, though. And I praise the Lord for that. We see, secondly, this morning, the reality of Christ's exaltation. So if you would flip back over to Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 9. says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. You see, the fact is, his exaltation is done. He is exalted. Now look, I'm thankful for everything that Jesus did on the cross, but that is not the whole story. Many churches today have statues of Jesus on the cross. And again, I'm thankful for the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I have news for you this morning. Jesus is not on the cross anymore. Jesus was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended up to heaven where right now he is exalted. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. And that's where he is right now. He has been exalted. What about Christ is exalted? First of all, I want us to notice his position has been exalted. His position is above all. Again, verse number 9, God hath also highly exalted him. You see, when Jesus was buried, he rose again. That was the first part of his exaltation. To say, hey, the humility is over. The, 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 the humiliation that he went through, that's over. So he rose from the dead. Then he was ascended up into heaven. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. His position is above all in this universe. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, as Isaiah looked upon the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So he saw the Lord in the rightful position in the universe, on the throne, in charge, in control. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says about Jesus who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Because no longer is Jesus in the little helpless baby in the cradle, in the manger. No longer is Jesus a little boy there in the temple. No longer is Jesus this man who is hanging after being beaten, and according to Isaiah 52, doesn't even really look like a man anymore has been beaten so badly. No longer is Jesus like that. No, right now he is sitting at the right hand of God and he is completely exalted. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, 
he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So in other words, Jesus is high and lifted up, and he is exalted. And his rightful place in the universe is above all. But can I get a little personal with you this morning? You maybe have said amen, whether out loud or in your heart, to the things I just said. But I'd like to ask you a personal question. And that is this. His rightful place is above all in the universe. But his rightful place is also above all in your life. And so the personal question is this, is he above all in your life? Does he have the throne in your life? Or are you on the throne in your life? Are you the one calling the shots? Are you the one that's in charge and doing what you want to do? Or are you allowing God, Jesus, to be exalted in your life? Is he high and lifted up in your life? In other words, let me just kind of break it down for you. Let me ask you these questions. Is he above all regarding your friends? Or are your friends more important than him? Is he above your finances? Or do we keep our finances to ourselves? I mean, after all, I'm the one that worked for it. Certainly, it's all mine. Oh, really? Who's the one that gave you the ability to work for it? Who's the one that guided and directed and gave you the job in the first place? Is he above all in your finances? Is he above all in your future? Teenagers, as you think about what you're going to do with your life and... and uh, you know, maybe some people ask the question, what do you want to do with your life? That's the wrong question. The question is, what does the Lord want you to do with your life? Because it's, if you're saved, your life belongs to Him anyway. Is He above all in your future? Is He above all your friends? Is He above all your fun? I think we all have things in our lives that we enjoy. And God indeed has given us richly all things to enjoy. But we start putting those things that he's given us to enjoy above him. That is a dangerous place. That's where it becomes idolatry, friend. Again, I'm excited for the football season to begin. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen and seeing OU beat OSU and Bedlam at the end of November. I'm looking forward to that. Better be careful because the sound guy is an OSU fan. I'm looking forward to fun things, and I hope that you have some fun things that you do. But i got to encourage you, let the Lord be above your fun. Because a lot of times people put their fun above God. Don't do that. Is he above your family? This one's a little more delicate, isn't it? I know that we, you know, I love my family. I love my wife, my children. Well, at least my daughter. No, just I love my children. I love my family, and I know you do too. 
But sometimes I think even Christians in America put their families above God. God has the rightful place in this universe above all. No one's going to take him off his throne. But you know, in our hearts and in our lives, sometimes we do. We kind of give Jesus the boot and say, you know, I'm a little better at this ruling my life than you are. Now, no one would say these words, but I'm telling you, all of us struggle with this. I want to remind us this morning that Exodus 20 and verse 3 is still in the Bible, which says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You say, well, that's Old Testament. I'm a New Testament saint. <laughs> oh, we're still under some of these laws. This is a commandment. God didn't free us from the commandments. Now we have the ability to obey the commandments in Christ, including this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You say, well, again, that's Old Testament. Okay, well, here's a New Testament verse for you. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body. Jesus is the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. A memory verse that we memorized a few months ago here at Cornerstone. And then Matthew 6.33, most of us know this verse too. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Too many times we seek our finances, we seek our friends, we seek our family. Instead of seeking the Lord, seek him first. Keep him in his rightful place in your life and in your heart. Someone once correctly said this, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. So is he valued above all in your life? Yes, I know he's on the throne. He has been exalted. That part has been done. But in each of our own lives, we have to decide who is on the throne of my life. Who's the king of Eric? Sad to say, sometimes it's Eric. I'm telling you, he's not a very good king. He doesn't rule nearly as well as Jesus does. Sometimes I think I need to be on the throne. I mentioned a bumper sticker in my Sunday school class this morning. Have you ever seen it? God is my co-pilot. How many have seen that bumper sticker before? Many of us have seen that. And you may have that on your car, and I don't mean to, uh, to bash it this morning too bad, but the idea is, and I know the intention is good with it, but look, God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need you to give your thoughts and your opinions on how to lead your life. He's got it quite well. Too many of us say, well, I'll let him be my co-pilot as long as I can kind of, you know, take over the wheel when he's going the wrong direction. God never goes the wrong direction. He always goes the right direction. Even when you think it's the wrong direction, it's still the right direction. So let him have his rightful place in your life. Let him be on the throne. So his position is above all, but also his name is above all. In verse number 
Uh, number uh, nine here, wherefore God hath also ex- highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Wow. There, there's a lot of great names. And I remember when we were thinking about naming our children, and uh, I've shared this with you all, that uh, every one of our children has to have uh, two criteria, has to fit two criteria. They have to be a Bible name. And they have to be one syllable. Because <laughs> I don't want to have to go, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, come here. Uh, too many, Mephibosheth, you know, too many syllables for me. I need it to be simple. So Luke, uh, Mark, Seth, and I don't remember the other one. No faith. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I remember the names. But once you get up here, I'm telling you, your brain kind of goes crazy. But guess what? God's name is special. Want to know why? Because no one named him. He named himself. No one said, well, who should we call? What what should we call God's name? God. No, God was God, and he named himself. And Christ's name is special as well. His, His name is mentioned and referred to throughout the entire word of God. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the creator of the world and the promised seed of the woman. In the book of Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, Jesus is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Jesus is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is our reigning king. In Ezra, Jesus is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, Jesus is our Mordecai. In Job, Jesus is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, Jesus is our great shepherd. In the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In the book of Daniel, he is the fourth man in life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband forever married to the backslider. In the book of Joel, Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and with fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the mighty to save. In Jonah, Jesus is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Jesus is God's evangelist, crying, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, Jesus is our Savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man, feeling what you and I feel. 
In John, he is the Son of God. In Acts, he is the Savior of the world. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the rock that followed Israel. In 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one, giving victory. In Galatians, he is your liberty, and he sets you free. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, which we're going through on Sunday mornings, he is your joy. In Colossians, Jesus is your completeness and the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Jesus is our hope. In 1 Timothy, Jesus is our faith. In 2 Timothy, he is our stability. In Philemon, he is our benefactor. In Titus, he is truth. In Hebrews, he is our perfection. In James, he is the power behind our faith. In 1 Peter, he is our example. In 2 Peter, he is our purity. In 1 John, he is our life. In 2 John, he is our pattern. In 3 John, he is our motivation. In the book of Jude, in that little book, he is the foundation of our faith and the king coming with ten thousands of his saints. And in the book of Revelation, praise the Lord, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, and he is coming again and the one who will make all things new. Jesus has a name which is above every name. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His name is special. Isaiah 9 and verse number 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And Paul told, talked to the, uh, wrote a book to the Ephesians. He said in chapter 1 and verse 20, in talking about the power of God, Paul said this, God's power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, Oh, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Exodus chapter 20, though. We said in verse number three, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, a few verses later in verse seven says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So as special and wonderful and above all that God's name is, too many times we flippantly use it. It's important to guard our mouths. I do want to say it is a disgrace that so many curse his name in our day and age without even thinking about it. And it's a shame also that a lot of Christians even use, use the shortened versions of his name such as gosh, golly, or, or gee. How sad that Christians see nothing wrong with the expressions, oh my God, or oh Lord, or taking God's special name, which is above all others, in vain. 
we should treat that name with reverence, respect. Psalm 111, verse number 9 says, He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. It says, holy and reverend is his name. How come, how come we don't use somebody else's name in vain? We use God's name in vain. Psalm 113, verse 1, praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Not to be taken in vain, but to be praised. Have you praised his name today? Does your life honor his name? Those of us who are Christians, guess what? You carry his name with you. Does your life back up the name? Does your life praise his name and honor his name? I hope it does. So the reality of Christ's exaltation, his position is above all, and his name is above all. I want us to see thirdly and quickly this morning our response to Christ's exaltation. So he is exalted. What, what, what kind of response should I have? I'll mention here in chapter 2, verse number 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what he's referring to here, by the way, is a future event. A future event in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that future event is called the great white throne judgment. And it's found in Revelation chapter 20. And if you want to quickly turn over there. Revelation 20 and verse number 11. John the Revelator wrote, I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, and by the way, the him there is referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away for there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Sea gave up their dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death. So at this point and yet to come, at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But I will encourage all of us to make these decisions now before the great white throne judgment. So first of all, I want to encourage all of us to bow your knee, to bow our knee. Again, back in uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, we see that every knee will bow, and then it goes on to explain which, uh, who's part of the every knee will bow. And it goes on to say in verse 10 that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. So first of all, it says, 
At one point, every knee is going to bow, including things in heaven. What are the things in heaven referring to? What's well, referring to the Old Testament saints, those who've gone on before, those who uh, were before Christ uh, entered this world, uh, those who placed their faith in the fact that Jesus would come one day and die upon the cross. And then it also includes the church saints, so those since the cross who have died, perhaps loved ones that you have who have gone on to glory before, uh, before you, these church saints, and then those who will be saved in the, the tribulation as well, and also the angels who are in heaven. So the things in heaven refer to all of those uh, individuals. Every knee will bow of things in heaven. So those will all bow their knee at Jesus Christ. And things in earth, it says. Things in earth. What are the things in earth? Well, the saved and the unsaved alike, when the great white throne takes place, uh, they will bow the knee. This is the ones who already have bowed the knee, and those who refuse to bow the knee will eventually bow the knee. The one who hates God the most and the religious man who's relying upon himself, they will all bow the knee at that moment. And then it says, in things under the earth. What are the things under the earth? Well, Satan... The fallen angels, which includes the demons, the devils, and the evil spirits, and the lost souls in hell. Those who are perishing right now in a Christless eternity will one day stand before God and bow the knee. They will bow the knee. The ones who, again, were good people that just didn't believe. And the ones who refused to bow the knee, the ones who hated God, the ones who uh, caused great division and horrible atrocities in history, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the abortion doctors, all those who have caused great harm and great sin and wickedness will bow the knee at some point in history. Daniel Webster was once asked, what is the great, greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind? That's a good question, isn't it? What is the greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind? And his response was this, the greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind is his accountability to God. The fact that one day he's going to have to give an account for his life. That one day he's going to meet, meet his maker. That one day he's going to answer for his life. So friend, the question is, will you bow? Here, here's the thing. You will bow the knee at some point. You might as well do it now while you have a choice. You might as, do it well, you might as well do it now while you can. Before you have to. So bow your knee and then also confess with your tongue. Again, at that point, everyone is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Romans 10 and verse number 9, Paul said this, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart 
Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. John Phillips, who is a great commentator, in his explanation of this passage says this, The day will come when all created intelligences will have to agree with God that what he has done in exalting his son to the highest pinnacle of power is right. And what he's done in providing redemption for all mankind through the shed blood of his son is a marvelous exhibition of his immeasurable wisdom, love, and grace. And that what he has done in executing his wrath on all those who rebelled against his throne or spurned his grace and is, is an example of proper justice. Look, every tongue will confess better now than later. So if you're here this morning and you've never personally believed on Jesus Christ, can I implore you to make that decision while you can? Because there will come a day when you will bow, you say, I'm not bowing the knee. You will bow the knee. Everyone will. Those who want to and those who don't will all bow the knee. I read this somewhere in studying, and I I didn't write it down, but Jesus Christ is going to be Lord over all because that's his place, that's his position. But he's only going to be a savior for those who believe on him. Is he your savior? Have you believed on him? If not, can I encourage you today on September 1st, the first day of September in 2019, would you place your faith and trust in him alone for salvation? Would you bow the knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Lastly, and very quickly this this morning, I want us to see number four, the result of Christ's exaltation. And that's found at the end of verse number 11, uh, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the result of him being exalted is it brings glory to the Father. And when, when we bow our knee and when we confess with our tongue that Jesus is Lord, it brings glory to the Father. By the way, the glory of the Father was always the purpose of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, the words of Christ, verse 31, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, here's what Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. And the point of that is that Jesus was there to bring glory to the Father. John 14, verse 13, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that was the purpose of Jesus Christ. But I can I let us all know something, that that is our purpose in life as well, is to bring glory to the Father. It's to bring glory to the God the Father. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our lives, we're here. We're, we're here to bring glory to God. That's why you and I exist. See, this should be the result of our lives, is to bring glory to God the Father. John the Revelator recorded the scene in heaven for us. Picture it this morning. When he said, I, and I beheld, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. 
It's a lot of people. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. For be said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Say, I'm not going to bow the knee. I'm not going to bow before him. Well, if you're a a believer this morning, that's what you're going to be doing for much of eternity. Is bowing before him and loving him and worshipping him because he deserves it. So that's the result of the exaltation of Christ, is so that the uh, God gets the glory. So the exaltation of Jesus Christ is a reality. What will your response be? Will you bow the knee to Him and confess with your tongue that He is indeed Lord? Will you allow Him to be above all that is in your life? Will you give Him first place in your life, and will you honor His name? with your language, and with your life. I encourage you to do that. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are willing to go to the cross for us and to be humiliated. We're thankful that in your economy, in, your, uh, in the way you set things up, that what goes down must come up. And Lord, you did indeed come up. Lord, you came up from the grave, and then you went up to heaven and And you're sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. But Lord, I pray that you would also sit on the throne of our hearts and our lives. And that we would allow you to be first and foremost in everything that we do and all the aspects of our lives. Not just on Sunday mornings that we come to church, but Lord, in every area. Lord, I pray especially if there's someone here today that does not yet know you as Savior. One day, everyone in this world and throughout history will know you as Lord. But not everybody's going to know you as Savior. And Lord, I pray that there would be somebody here today that would make the decision to place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. 